Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for the Hour of Bishop Sheen. We like to call this the School of Sheen because we're going to learn a great deal today. Now, the theme of today's show is on freedom. And so Bishop Sheen, uh, we'll go back to his television series, Life is Worth Living, and we're going to listen to one of his broadcasts on the topic of freedom. And then for the second half of our show, we will have Bishop Sheen give us a catechism lesson, and he'll give us the lesson on human freedom, and it's lesson number four in our 50-part series. So I would encourage each one of you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We received some interesting stories about children during the past week. It seems that uh, a few weeks ago we gave two talks on alcoholism, and after the first one we announced that the second one would be on the same subject. The following week as we were about to begin, this little child called the mother saying, Mommy, Mr. Alcoholism is on again. (laughs) And we also heard from Chicago that they were announcing forthcoming productions on television, and they flashed an announcement of the Racket Squad. And then do you know what followed? My picture. (laughs) And last week... We spoke on uh, juvenile delinquency, and shortly after the telecast, we received a telephone call here at the theater. It seems that four men were in this particular bar. They ordered four beers, and they were looking at our show. And as they were looking at it, the first one took a drink and spat it out. And the second one did the same, and the third and the fourth. And finally, the spokesman of the four said to the bartender, he says, what's the idea? This isn't beer. This is root beer. <laughs> and the bartender said, listen. As long as you're looking at that man, that's all you get. We're not going to have any delinquent fathers in here. (laughs) Well, if those men are back in that bar tonight, let me tell them tonight I'm talking on freedom. Order your beers, boys. Well, freedom is a word that's very often used and not very often understood. As a matter of fact, freedom has two sides. One is freedom from something, namely from constraint and force. The other is the freedom for something, namely a goal or a purpose. This is concerned with means, this is concerned with ends and destiny. This is the bridge, this is the city. And the two must always go together. You cannot have a freedom from something without a goal or a purpose or a perfection. I heard of a rich man who went up to a taxi driver. He said to the taxi driver, are you free? Taxi driver says, yes, I'm free. The rich man left shouting, hurrah for freedom. In other words, what's the use of being free unless you've got some destiny, some perfection? Now, let me show you how the two go together. Suppose you were going to take a trip. 
You are free to choose all your means. You must be free from constraint to take a train, free from force to take a plane, free from violence to walk. You may choose any means that you please. But you certainly ought to have a freedom for something ought to be going someplace. Otherwise, you'd be just like a ship at sea without a rudder and without a port. You are free, for example, to choose any particular vocation you want in life. Follow any profession. Doctor, lawyer, musician, linguist. Makes no difference which. You ought to be free from constraint in order to do that. But once you decide on it, for example, you decide to become a linguist, the specialist in foreign languages, then you have a different kind of freedom. The more you study the syntax, the more you obey the laws of grammar, the more you subject yourself to correct vocabulary, know the tenses and genders and so forth, the more free you are to speak that particular language. You go into a restaurant to order food. Ever notice that when you go in, what you want is always scratched out? <laughs> you go in to order food, you can choose anything you please. Certainly, your freedom from constraint, the waiter doesn't ram a dish down your throat. The purpose of it, the perfection of the choice, certainly is health. Therefore, the two, freedom from and freedom for, always go together. Now let us see what is happening to freedom in the modern world. There has been a divorce. That which God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And these great dualities which God joins, such as body and soul and husband and wife, are sometimes divorced and disjoint. And this negative and positive freedom are also divorced in our modern world, with the result that today the freedom from something, or the choice, has been separated and divorced from the freedom for, or perfection, or goal, or destiny. This is the error of Western civilization. Modern Western civilization has identified freedom with freedom from constraint. And it denies goals and purposes and ends. Communism, on the contrary, has this kind of freedom, law, order, perfection, but without a freedom of choice. Why these two must always go together? And I think a perfect example of how they go together is courtship. Suppose a young man is, is uh, proposing to a young woman. And he says, I want to marry you. I freely choose you out of every, every woman in New York. And she says, well, how do you know that you love me? Have you, uh, have you asked the 785,932 other eligible young women in New York? <laughs> now, if he's a good metaphysician, as he makes his proposal, and the proposal, incidentally, is a sentence that ends with a proposition, It's a young man's maiden speech. 
I, I heard of a young man who was called upon at a dinner once to give a... Excuse me, these things just flash across my mind. Here as I talk. Uh, he was giving a maiden's uh, speech at his wedding, and he had never talked before, but they said, you've got to say something. And he was very embarrassed, and to cover his embarrassment, he put his hand on the shoulder of his bride, and he began, this thing has been forced on me. <laughs> To get back to the subject. You see, if you're using a teleprompter, you never could break in that way because the teleprompter had already gone ahead on you. And if the young man were a metaphysician, he would say to the young woman, well, in a certain sense, yes. He said, I have asked him because the mere fact that I choose you, I negate all of them. Love is not only an affirmation. Love is also a negation. And when I choose you, I am choosing what is perfect for me. And from now on, but the only freedom I want is the freedom to be your slave. That is the perfection of freedom. Freedom in love. Now, in heaven, incidentally, there will be no freedom of choice. Did you know that? No freedom of choice. Why not? Because when you attain God, you're perfectly free. I mean, you're united with the perfect, and the perfect leaves nothing to choose like the young man with a perfect woman. He doesn't want to choose anybody else. Now coming back to the divorce and the separation, our Western civilization has this kind of freedom. Freedom from restraint alone. And the result is that our Western freedom is almost a license. Instead of a freedom, our Western freedom as we understand it today, is something like, well, a farmer, for example, who uh, is free to plant any vegetable he pleases. So he plants um, cabbages. And then he decides they're not high half enough, so he plants cauliflower, because cauliflower is a cabbage with a college education. <laughs> then two weeks after he's done that, he uproots them, and he, he, he uh, plants some garlic. And he decides, no, this is terrible, because the people who eat this stuff never practice breath control. So he does away with that. Then he tears them up and he plants onions. And then he's afraid they'll build you up physically and tear you down socially. So he uproots those, and then he plants some prunes. I mean, some plums. And then he gets worried that they'll turn into prunes someday, because after all, a prune is nothing but a worried plum. So he tears up the plums. He has no goal, no purpose. And so the modern world, instead of working toward an ideal, changes the ideal and calls it progress. Why we do not know precisely in our Western world why we are living. Why go on educating unless we know the purpose of a man? The essence of his freedom is not merely to be free from constraint, from violence. He must have some objective and goal and perfection in life. So we speak of freedom of speech, as if it meant that there could never be any limitation upon freedom of speech. Certainly there is a limitation. Freedom of speech has an objective and a goal, namely the communication of truth and knowledge. I am not entitled, for example, to freedom of speech if I should abuse anyone on television. It should be taken away from me. Freedom of speech does not mean the right to shout fire in a theater. 
And all of our freedoms have certain goals and certain purposes and objectives. The result is that our the people of our Western world, simply because they do not know why they are living, they've never decided what they're going to do with their freedom, find it boring. They would like to surrender their responsibility. They're full of anxieties and worries, and there's nothing in life that is quite as boring as a purposeless existence. Simply because our Western civilization has not found the meaning and the purpose of life, simply because it concentrates upon freedom from something, our Western world is strong only in war and not in peace. It's strong only in war because it has the basic objective, at least, of defending our own existence, but it is not strong in peace because it has no unified faith. No universal goal, no universally recognized purpose in life. And if this is the error of our Western world, this is the error of communism. I tell you what communism has done. Communism has taken that perfection which belongs to God, that supreme love which takes away all choice because it's what the heart desires. And communism has taken, has taken that perfection of God, and has transferred it to earth. And communism says, we are God. We are perfection. We take away your freedom of choice. Our materialistic, atheistic society, therefore, does not give you the liberty to choose candidates. It takes away the freedom of suffrage and the right of voting. And it does these things because we are final and we are absolute, and we take the place of God. And that is why the Soviet Constitution in Article 125 states that the citizens of the Soviet Republic are entitled to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, on condition that they support the communist system. This is not a real freedom. It's only the freedom, freedom of perfection that belongs solely to God and not to a materialized society. Simply because they do have a purpose, they do have a goal, which is the wrong one, namely hate and world revolution, they are strong not only in war, they are strong in peace. Strong in peace because they know what they are after. They know the purpose of their philosophy. They are united upon goals. Their destinies indeed are wicked, but at any rate it unites them. So we may summarize, this is the condition of the world. Our Western civilization calls freedom the right to do whatever you please. That's the way you'll find almost everyone in the Western world defining it. Freedom does not mean the right to do whatever you please. Otherwise, it's a physical power, not a moral power. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chicken. You can stuff Aunt Lucy's mattress with old Gillette razor blades. <laughs> Freedom is only physical power, then only the strong are free. And because this resulted in a chaos and a crisscross of individual egotisms, communism came along and they said, no, freedom is the right to do whatever you must. And so, Frederick Engels said, the co-founder of communism, he said, you hold a stone in your hand and you drop it. That stone is free to fall in obedience to the law of gravitation. And so he says, you are free. 
only on condition that you obey the law of the dictator. This is freedom of an end without the freedom of choice. And the end is materialistic instead of divine. Our Western civilization is like the pendulum separated from a clock. This is the clock without a pendulum. And what is the true meaning of friend, of truth? True meaning of, of freedom, rather, is freedom is the right to do whatever you want. Whatever you want. And oughtness implies law, implies purpose. And the purpose and the law attains through freedom of choice. For example, I am free to draw a triangle only on condition that I give it three sides. I have to obey the law of a triangle. I'm free to draw a giraffe only on condition I give it a long neck. If I give it a short neck, I'm fine that I'm not free to draw a giraffe at all. If in a stroke of broad-mindedness, I give a square five sides, I'm not free to draw a square. Freedom implies some oftness and some law. And we are free in that law. Very free within it. As a matter of fact, if we obey the traffic laws, we're free to drive. The more a man knows about golf, I'm not a golfer, but I know something about it. The more a man knows about the laws of golf and how to hold a club, the more free he is to play it. I remember about eight or ten years ago playing golf with someone, and I was always out in the rough, and I came back. Finally got on the green after 48 shots. He said to me, why didn't you write? <laughs> so our blessed Lord said, it's the truth that makes you free. Namely, there must be some end, some goal. Believe me, the more you understand truth, the more you understand the truth of science, the more free you are to be a scientist. The more you understand the truths of the law of God, the more free you are to live and to enjoy life. The laws and the commandments of God are not restrictions of human liberty. When you, for example, buy a, an admiral refrigerator, there are some directions that come with it. One of the directions says, plug it in. Suppose you say, no, I'm not going to have admiral telling me what to do with it. <laughs> I have a right to do whatever I please, and I will not plug it in. You're not free to have a refrigerator. You can see, therefore, the tragedy of freedom in the world. God might have made another kind of world than this. Sure. He might have made a world of necessity so that we would all be good with the same necessity that apple trees grow at. He might have made a world in which we would all be virtuous as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. God decided to make a free world. And freedom is a risk. It is a terrible risk. Educators, teachers take a risk whenever they let their children out for recess. Parents take a risk when they give their children freedom. And God took a risk. What a risk. When he made man free. And yet, in his infinite wisdom, he knew that it was better to make 
This universe, a veil of character making, a moral universe. But how could he make it moral? Unless he made us free. That was the condition. A man can be virtuous only in a society where it is possible for him to be vicious. A man can be a patriot only in a country where it is possible to be a traitor. One can be a saint only in a church where it is possible also to be a devil. No crowns of merit rest suspended over those who do not fight. They might all go out to enterprise unheeded and alone. Were there not some great moral issues at stake? And therefore God chose to make it possible for us to revolt against his will. And when he gave man human freedom, he will never, never, never to take it back. Never. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the eternal guarantee of human freedom. Man with a clenched fist can raise it eternally in the air and say, non serviam. His own misery and unhappiness was the freedom chose. So he will never to take it back. Because he knew that there would be goodness produced out of all this evil in his own divine way, just as, as the patient submission to evil in this world produces good as we exchange a blessing for a curse and charity to those who hate and despise and ridicule us. And though it is possible indeed for evil men to commit foul crimes on this earth, the universe never became meaningless with it all because one day he came into this world of ours and took upon himself a human nature and allowed himself to be visited with all of the effects of evil. He submitted himself to the free acts of man, to all of us. And what was the worst thing that free men could do? How could they most abuse their freedom? They could most abuse their freedom, not by killing babes, not by bombing cities. They could most abuse freedom by slaying goodness itself. In that moment... Evil was strongest, it was canopied in its greatest might. And yet, evil then went down to defeat through the glory of the resurrection. And from that time on, it became possible for all men to submit every now and then to the evil of the world, knowing that united with this divine goodness, there would eventually come a great victory and a great peace. Those who understand freedom then realize that the greatest peace comes from obedience to his will. And the greatest freedom that there is in this world is the freedom to be a saint. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336.
or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR, Canada's first community radio station. I want to thank you for joining us for the first half of our School of Sheen program. I love how Bishop Sheen ended that show when he said, The Freedom of Being a Saint. And I always think of Mother Angelica and how she used to begin a number of her programs and she would say, We're all called to be saints. Don't miss the opportunity. And so let us not miss that opportunity to become saints. And we do that by practicing our faith, doing our best, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And so I know that these audio recordings from Bishop Sheen help us a great deal. So we'll now uh, go into our catechism lesson. This is lesson number four uh, from the Sheen Catechism. And he's got 50 lessons in this catechism. So after these 50 lessons, you'll know your faith that much better. And so I would ask you now to just sit back and relax again and enjoy this teaching from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on human freedom. Peace be to you. No one is born an atheist, as no one is born a skeptic. That is to say, uh, one who doubts the possibility of ever discovering truth. These attitudes are made, and they are made less by the way one thinks than by the way one lives. If we do not live as we think, we soon begin to think as we live. We suit our philosophy to our actions. That is bad. Let me tell you the story of an atheist in London, England. I used to do considerable work in St. Patrick's Parish in Soho Square in that city. One Sunday morning, I came into the front of the church to read Mass, and I found a young lady standing in front of the communion rail, haranguing the congregation. She was saying to the congregation, There is no God. There is too much evil in the world. Reason cannot transcend sense. It is impossible to conclude to his existence. Every night, she said, I go out to Hyde Park. I talk against God. I circulate England, Scotland, and Wales with pamphlets denouncing a belief in the existence of God. 
And on and on she went. By that time, I was up to the communion rail. I said to her, Young lady, I'm very happy to hear that you say you believe in the existence of God. She said, You silly fool, I don't. I said, I understood you to say just the contrary. Suppose I said that I went out every night to Hyde Park and talked against 20 footed ghosts and 10 centaurs. Suppose I circulated England, Scotland, and Wales, denouncing a belief in these ghosts and in their centaurs. What would happen to me? She said, You would be crazy. They would lock you up. Well, I said, do you not put God in exactly the same category as these fantasies of the imagination, namely ghosts and centaurs? Why then would I be crazy attacking ghosts and centaurs and you are not crazy attacking God? She said, I don't know. Why? I said, because... When I attack these phantoms of the imagination, I am attacking something that is unreal. But when you attack God, you are attacking something just as real as the thrust of a sword or an embrace. Do you think I said that we would have any such thing in the world as prohibition unless there was something to prohibit? Could there ever be anti-cigarette laws? unless there were cigarettes? How can there be atheism unless there is something to atheate? She said, I hate you. Well, I said, now you've given the answer. Atheism is not a doctrine. It is a cry of wrath. There are indeed two kinds of atheists. There are the simple persons who have read a smattering of science and and they conclude probably that there is no God. But the other type of atheist is that type that might be called militant, such as the communists. They really do not deny the existence of God. They challenge God. It is the very reality of God that saves them from insanity. It is the reality of God that gives them a real object against which they may vent their hate. Now, after discussing the attitudes that any soul may take in the face of proofs, we will investigate the knowledge of God. First of all, how does God know? Well, God does not know the way we know. We know by looking at things. God knows by looking at himself. We can get a faint idea of the way God knows from an architect. Before an architect puts up a building, He can tell you if he is the designer. The size of the building, its dimensions, the location of each room, 
its height, the number of elevators it will have, and so forth. How does he know all of this before the building is built? Because he is the designer of the becoming of the building. Now, God is a cause, too. But God is not just a cause of the becoming of the universe. He's the cause of the very being of the universe. And just as an architect needs only look into his own mind to understand something of the nature of that which he has designed, as a poet knows his verses in his own mind, so God knows all things by looking at himself. He does not need to wait for you to turn a corner before he knows that you're doing so. He does not see little boys putting their fingers into the cookie jar and conclude they're stealing. Everything is naked and open to the eyes of God. For example, he does not just look down at a debutante at a coming out party and then be on tender hooks for the next five years, wondering if she's going to find a man? There is no future in God. There is no past in God. There is only the present. We can get a faint idea of what this knowledge is from an example of this kind. Suppose you walked through a cemetery in which you saw a succession of gravestones belonging to the same family. As you walked along slowly, you saw written on the first gravestone the inscription, Ezekiel Hingenbottom, died 1938. Then you walked a little further, and you saw another tombstone reading, Hiram Hingenbottom, died 1903. A few steps more, Nahum Hingenbottom, died in 1883. And then still further on, Reginald Hingenbottom, died in 1861. These tombstones would indicate a succession of events that happened in space and time. But now suppose you flew over that cemetery in a plane. Then you would see all at once. And that is how history must look to one who is outside of time. Another example may make clear the knowledge of God. Imagine you were looking at a motion picture reel. This motion picture reel has the full story or drama unwritten on every single inch of it. Suppose the motion picture reel were conscious. If it were, it would know the whole story. But, if you and I were to know the whole story, we would have to wait until that screen, or rather that film, was unrolled upon the screen. We would only know successively what the real knows all at once. And that is the way it is with the knowledge of God. Now coming a little more closer to that knowledge. 
Because God knows all things and because he is creator, it follows that every single thing in the world was made according to an idea or a pattern existing in the divine mind. Look round about you. You see a bridge, a statue, a painting, a building. Before any of these things began to be, they existed in the mind of the one who designed or planned them. In like manner, there is not a tree, a flower, a bird, an insect in the world that does not in some way correspond to an idea existing in the divine mind. The pattern of them has been wrapped up, as it were, in matter. And what our knowledge does, what science does, is to unravel and unwrap, as it were, this matter in order to rediscover the ideas of God. And it's because God put his ideas or patterns in things that we are assured of the rationality and purposiveness of the cosmos. It is that that makes science possible. If there were no human minds in the universe, if there were no angelic minds, things would still be true because they corresponded with the idea existing in the mind of God. Naturally, we cannot bring up a subject like the knowledge of God without meeting certain difficulties. One of the most obvious ones is, well, if God knows all things, he knows then what is going to happen to every single soul in the world. He knows, for example, whether I am going to be saved or I am going to be lost. Therefore, I am predetermined. Well, that was an argument that was used a few centuries ago. As a matter of fact, it was part of the philosophy of Eastern peoples. Now, in order to understand the knowledge of God, you must make a distinction between foreknowledge and predetermination. The two are not identical. God, indeed, does foreknow everything, but he does not predetermine us independently of our will and our merits. Just suppose that you knew the stock market very well. And because of your superior knowledge of business conditions, you said that such and such a stock within six months would be selling ten points higher than it is now. Suppose six months later it actually sold ten points higher. Would you have predetermined and caused it to be ten points higher? Although you foreknew it. There were other influences, were there not, besides your superior knowledge? To make it still more concrete, in the early colonial days of this country, 
a farmer set out for the town to make some purchases. He had gone but a short distance and he came back and he told his wife he had forgotten his gun. His wife was a perfectly good determinist. And his wife argued this way. Either you are predestined to be shot by the Indians or you are not predestined to be shot by the Indians. If you are predestined to be shot by the Indians, the gun will do you no good. If you are not predestined to be shot by the Indians, you will not need your gun. But the husband said, suppose I am predestined to be shot by the Indians on condition I do not have my gun. And in like manner, God knows all things, but he still leaves us with freedom. How can God influence you and still leave you free? Well, consider various kinds of influences. First, turn a key in the door. There is the impact of something material on something material. And the result is the opening of a door. That is one kind of influence. The influence of a material thing on another material thing. But there's still another kind of influence. In the springtime, you plant a seed in the garden. The sun, the moisture, the atmosphere, the chemicals in the earth all begin to use an influence upon that seed. It certainly is not the same kind of action as turning a piece of steel in a lock. There are tremendous capacities for growth in that seed. And what most awakens the seed to growth is something invisible, namely the sun. Now go a stage high. Consider the case of a father talking to his son trying to influence him, for example, to become a doctor. What actually influences the son is some invisible truth, as well as the deep love of the father for the son and of the son for the father. What love actually does is to bring out in the son a free act. The son is not obliged to do exactly what his father wants, he is free to do the contrary. But truth and love have so moved him that he regards what he does as the very perfection of his personality. Later on, he may say, I owe everything I have to that conversation I had with my father. I really began to discover my true self. Now, in some such mysterious way as this, God works upon your soul. He does not work like a key in a lock. He works less visibly than a father on a son. But there are the same mysterious words. I and you. Because God is the very embodiment of love, it is love inspires you to be what you were meant to be. A free person in the highest sense of the word. 
The more you are led by God's love, the more you become yourself. And it is all done without ever losing your freedom. That still leaves another great problem. Namely, the problem of evil. You may ask, if God is power and love, why does he create this kind of world and why does he permit evil? We are not going to give here a complete explanation of evil, and a complete explanation of evil cannot be given here below. We will only just give certain indications of why it is possible. Let us begin with the question, why God made this kind of world? must realize that this is not the only kind of a world that God could have made. He might have made 10,000 other kinds of worlds in which there would be no pain and no struggle and no sacrifice. But this is the best possible kind of world that God could have made for the purpose that he had in mind. Notice the distinction we're making. For example, a little boy says to his father, who is a distinguished architect, I want you to build me a birdhouse. The architect designs a birdhouse. It's not the best house that that skilled father can design, but it may be the very best house that the architect could design for the purpose that he had in mind, namely, to build a house for sparrows. Now that brings us to this other question. What purpose now did God have in mind in making this world? The answer is that God intended to build a moral universe. He will from all eternity to build a stage on which characters would emerge. He might have made a world without morality, without virtue, without character. He might have made a world in which each and every one of us would have sprouted goodness with the same necessity, for example, that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But he chose not to make that kind of a world. Not to make a world in which we would be good as fire is hot and ice is cold. He will to make a moral universe in order that by the right use of the gift of freedom, characters might emerge. What does God care for things piled into an infinity of space even though they be diamonds. For if all the orbits of heaven were so many jewels, glittering as the sun, what would their external but undisturbed balance mean to him in comparison with a single character which could take hold of the tangled skeins of a seemingly erect and ruined life and weave out of them the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness? The choice before God in creating the world, therefore, lay between creating a purely mechanical universe peopled by mere automaton machines or creating a spiritual universe in which there would be a choice of good and evil. All right, grant it then that God chose to make a moral universe in which there would be character. What was the condition of such a universe? He had to make us free. 
That is to say, he had to endow us with the power to say yes and no. And to be captains of our own fate and destiny. Morality implies responsibility and duty, but these can exist only on condition of freedom. Stones have no morals because they are not free. We do not condemn ice because it is melted by heat. Praise and blame can be bestowed only on those who are masters of their own will. It is only because you, for example, have the possibility of saying no that there's so much charm in your character when you say yes. Take the quality of freedom away from anyone and it is no more possible for him to be virtuous than it is for the blade of grass which he treads beneath his feet. Take freedom away from life and there would be no more reason to honor the fortitude of martyrs than there would be, for example, oh, to honor the flames which kindle their faggots. Is it therefore any impeachment of God that he chose not to reign over an empire of chemicals? If God has deliberately chosen the kind of empire not to be ruled by force but by freedom, and if we find that his subjects are able to act against his will as stars and atoms cannot, does this not prove that he has possibly given to those human beings the chance of breaking allegiance in order that there might be meaning and purpose in that allegiance when they freely chose to give it. Here we have, then, a mere suggestion as to the possibility of evil. It's bound up with the freedom of man. Man who's free to love is free to hate. He who is free to obey is free to rebel. Virtue in this concrete order is possible only in those spheres in which it is possible to be vicious. A man can be a saint only in a church in which it is possible to be a devil. You say, well, if I were God, I would destroy evil. Well, if you did that, you would destroy human freedom. God will not destroy freedom. If we do not want any dictators on this earth, certainly we do not want any dictators in the kingdom of heaven. And those, therefore, who would blame God for allowing man freedom to go on hindering and thwarting his work are like those who, seeing blots and smudges and errors in the student's notebook, would condemn the teacher for not snatching away the book and doing the copy himself. Just as the object of the teacher is sound education and not the production of neat and well-written copybooks, so the object of God is the development of souls and not the production of of biological entities. And you say, well, if God knew I would sin, why did he make me? God did not make any of us as sinners. We make ourselves. In that sense, we are creators. Therefore, the greatest gift of God to man short of grace is the gift of human freedom and the power to love him in return. God love you. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5. CKWR, Canada's first community radio station. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this, what I like to call the School of Sheen. It's this hour-long session, just like going to class and learning our faith. And Bishop Sheen gave two excellent lessons today on freedom. 
You know, and I think of how I'm blessed to, I came back into the area uh, two weeks ago and gave a presentation to about 30 uh, young adults uh, at St. Aloysius Parish. We talked about the seven deadly sins and the antidote for the seven deadly sins, of course, which are the uh, words that our Lord spoke from the cross. We like to refer to them as the seven last words. And we'll actually do a show on that in the near future. It's more of a Lenten uh, meditation, but uh, again, there's always those powerful, um, just want to say, tips of the faith, how to overcome those seven deadly sins. And so I want to thank uh, the young people who uh, came out to the event. It's always great to talk about sin. Uh, I'm not saying it's one of my favorite topics, but uh, I think people want to hear about it, especially techniques on how to uh, overcome sin. You know, and I think one of the things that Bishop Shane said so many times when he was on the air was to pray. He's always encouraging us to pray. Uh, spend that time in the holy hour. Uh, spend that time praying a rosary. Uh, just quiet, meditative prayer, talking to God. And so may I encourage you to pray this week. I want to thank uh, two listeners who donated. Uh, of course, Jill Morrison and uh, Joseph uh, Kalatahil. Uh, again, my apology on the pronunciation there. Uh, again, just people that, uh, you know, go to our website, bishopsheentoday.com, and there's the donate button, and they feel called to donate. Of course, you know, we need to pay bills like everybody else, uh, airtime cost and the heat and hydro bill. And so every little bit that you can help us with, we appreciate that. And we do have a charitable status, so we'll give you uh, that receipt that you need for the tax man every year. And uh, please think about that for your Christmas giving to donate to us. Our website again, www.bishopsheentoday.com. And there you'll find over 300 audio files of Bishop Sheen. Uh, there's the Sheen Catechism we've been sharing. Uh, there's a number of family uh, retreats. There's, there's just tons of stuff. And, of course, all his old YouTube videos, which is from his television series, Life is Worth Living, uh, from the 1950s and 60s. And there's a list of the 66 books he wrote. And many of those books are available for purchase, Amazon.com, all the different sites. So uh, there's lots there. So, again, bishopsheentoday.com. And I want to thank, again, uh, the parish of St. Aloysius for hosting me. Uh, I'm always available to speak on Sheen. And so if you'd like to, by all means, you can contact me on the website, bishopsheentoday.com. And so, you know, as I give a signature closing, you've heard me for years on the Holy Rosary program, Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. I like to end the Bishop Sheen Hour with the same way, with that beautiful passage from Scripture from the Book of Numbers. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
Recuerdo. 